Lights, camera, action. We have been trying to capture domain expertise, human expertise, for a very long time. This is, this is not new what I'm talking about. The key insight here is before it was very difficult. Now it's becoming so much easier. In the past, we would build these things called expert systems, right? The, the initial AI was not generative AI. It was not neural networks, right? It was painstakingly collecting human rules and then putting them into these rules engines, a lot of symbolic processing, right? Fuzzy logic and so on. And, and they re, they work reasonably, like rice cookers work on fuzzy logic, right? Mm. Uh, but, but they're very limited. But now with what's available with, you know, I'm going to use the word chat GPT as a generative AI, large language models. We, we can capture human knowledge much more fluidly, right? How? Just give it the natural language specification. Hi, everyone. It's Lauren Hawker-Saffer. Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. In this area of abundant data and ever-advancing analytics, we find ourselves on the brink of a technological revolution. Machine-driven AI has made significant strides with algorithms and models delivering powerful insights and informing better decision-making. But with this progress, a thought-provoking question arises. Will we soon reach a point where AI fully replaces the expertise of humans? Now, our guest today, Christopher Wynne, firmly believes that the human touch remains irreplaceable. He argues that AI systems, while incredibly powerful, often reflect and reinforce the biases, prejudices and imperfections of the world as it is. Christopher shares his insights on why achieving the world we truly desire goes beyond augmenting the world we have. A better future, he suggests, requires the interplay between AI and the human eye. So throughout this episode, we'll explore the implications of relying solely on machine-driven AI, the potential risks and limitations it entails, and the critical role human expertise plays in navigating these challenges. We'll also discuss how the human eye can contribute to overcoming biases and ensuring ethical decision-making within the realm of AI. So let's embark on an enlightening conversation that unravels the intricate relationship between AI and human expertise. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you, Lauren. How are you doing today? I'm good. I backed into the office, so I got a lot of adrenaline going. Yes, I think that people are starting to progress or certainly reconvene in an office environment. Absolutely. It's good to be back in the office, right? Do you think it's beneficial that people come together in a an office environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like we, we can go for the whole episode on the topic that I've thought about a lot. But I, I think there's there's very few things. I mean, it's nice, for example, to see you on video and so on. But, uh, you know, if we were to work together, the high bandwidth communication that is afforded by, you know, face-to-face communication, it's not just words. You know, we get a lot of clues and everything. And and to have a room full of people to do that, you know, we, we can move at 10 times the speed of distributed. Definitely. Uh, I, I know that's, uh, a lot of people would disagree with me, but... <laughs> Definitely. I agree with you. So tell us a little bit about who you are, Christopher, and why we're talking to you today about this particular topic. 
Uh, yeah. So my background is way too long to go over in whole. But I think what the highlights is that I, I came to the U.S. as a refugee child at age 13. This is from Vietnam. right? So I grew up speaking Vietnamese and French. And, you know, uh, the first word of English I learned was was when I was 13. You know, went through Malaysia, you know, went uh, escaped as a boat person and so on. But very fortunately, you know, you, you, you heard, hear that joke about unfortunately and fortunately and so on. But fortunately, I ended up in Silicon Valley right at the beginning of the PC revolution. Revolution hacked, you know, the term software hacking and so on, right? Since 13, and I really haven't stopped since. I'm, I'm still very, in fact, um, right after this, I'm going to get back to some more coding, you know, of our of our open source code base on on AI. But since then, I, I've had a long career. I've been a professor. I got my PhD at Stanford, undergrad at Berkeley. I've been an executive at Google. I built startups. And uh, most recently, I was an executive at Panasonic through an acquisition of my previous company, where after a long career of digital technologies, I sort of came back to the physical world, right? Panasonic, as you may know, makes all the batteries for Tesla, you know, does a lot of automotive. If you fly, you know, on planes, 70% chance you're looking at that screen, the, the in-flight entertainment system, the Wi-Fi, the satellite connections and so on are provided by Panasonic Avionics. So this is just an, a sampling of all the, the physical things that Panasonic is a global uh, maker of. And it, it was from that experience that taught me most of what we've been doing in Silicon Valley has been really the low-hanging fruits of digital AI. And, and the frontiers, the exciting frontier is really physical AI. That's where we really touch humans, you know, human brains, human muscles, and so on. And I know this resonates a lot more with economies that are still making things, manufacturing mm -hmm. things. And of yeah. course, some of that is also returning to, to the U.S. because of geopolitics. But, but my new startup after, you know, the, the whole team left uh, Panasonic and we built a new startup, we're, we're squarely focused on, on, on connecting human intelligence to this AI that we're creating and and making sure that humans remain in control, that the intent of the systems, right, the domain expertise and so on, you know, are infused into our machines, into our algorithms. But really, you know, what they do and why they do it, you know, are controlled by, by human managers. Wow, fascinating. I mean, you've certainly had a very unique journey, and I'm sure that you've learned a lot from that journey itself. How do you think, like, if you were to take a step back and analyze the beginning of your career? I mean, at 13, you mentioned that you learned your first word of English, that you ended up in Silicon Valley at the start of the PC revolution. Why do you think you ended up there? Was it like chance or was it a technical curiosity that's been interlaced in, in your own journey up until now? Yeah, I, well, you know, we are a victim or a beneficiary of our circumstances as, as much as anything that is, you know, internally driven. Of course, as a, as a kid, even now, uh, you mentioned curiosity. I'm, I am eternally curious, right? You know, I liked it. I, I've been a professor and, and was why I first discovered that a good PhD program is where people first learn how to learn. And I think learning how to learn is more important than even learning, you know, facts and, and so on. I, you know, even as I sit now, 40 odd years after arriving in the US, right? I'm still excited by the things that I'm learning. I think that is what propels me forward. That I think what that's what propels the company forward. That's what propels society forward, right? I think this, uh, and, and by the way, you know, 
People think AI is going to kill us all. I, 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 I'm in the camp that say it could, but it doesn't have to, right? You know, any technology has potential for for good and bad, and I think we we can and we will uh, build this in 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 such. We have no choice but to build it the right way, so that it does propel humanity forward. Uh, I, I like to say that this is the century of of hyper evolution for humans. And with that respect of motioning it forward in a positive nature, you mentioned that in your current organization, you're connecting human intelligence to AI. And we mentioned at the start of the podcast in the introduction that you certainly think that this interplay between AI and the human eye or human intelligence is what will bring a better future. So my question maybe to that would be, what's wrong with the present and what is, in your opinion, the current interplay between AI and human intelligence or the, the human eye? Wow, that's a that's a question that I can talk about at a very broad <laughs> level or very specific, right? Because, you know, to start... Whatever uh, you we, wish. <laughs> we, we humans never like the present as it is, right? In other words, we are always like tomorrow should be different. Right. You you want tomorrow to be different from today in some positive way. So it's not so much what's wrong with today, but hey, things can be better in this way and that way and so on. So maybe let me talk specifically about, let's say, take a narrow use case and then we can generalize what it may mean for companies and for, for, for humanity. Companies like Panasonic or Hitachi or Intel and so on. Uh, they always have something called a field service team, right? These, these are the people that go out and they fix things, right? And typically, it turns out, uh, the people with the expertise to really fix all of these systems and anticipate things that may go wrong with these systems, each company probably has two or three of these people, right? Because they make a lot of equipment. Like, for example, I work with, with Panasonic and on refrigeration systems, the whole country, you know, they serve tens of thousands of supermarkets with their refrigeration, their commercial refrigeration system. And there are only three experts. And yet there are thousands of these field service personnel that have to go out and, and do, do these things. Now, these people are, you know, intelligent people. They're well-trained and so on. But there's a gap between the human expert and the average field service personnel. And so there's a lot of cost involved in misdiagnosing things and doing things not as optimally as it might. And by the way, this also applies to, say, MRI, uh, you know, magnetic resonance imaging, you know, taking mm -hmm. images of, of, of your body that, that people think is just like photography. You know, it requires a lot of expertise to, to tune these machines and, and, and set them up. Wouldn't it be nice if somehow all of these 2,000 you know, this 2000 person organization somehow has constant expert uh, access to this domain knowledge, this expertise of the other humans, you know, the two or three humans. And, and so that's a particular use case where we are building something to produce exactly that, right? How do we encapture the knowledge? Instead of being out there alone in the field, you have this virtual assistant, right? The, the assistant doesn't do everything. So this is not necessarily a robot that, that goes in and fixes everything. You still need that, that human judgment, human touch mm -hmm. and human safety, but it empowers the, the field person to do, to be so much better than they otherwise would be. And if you think about that, you know, the ability to make humans excel at the level of the best of humans, right? And you replicate that across humankind. Uh, how much better a world could it be? That is um, a very good question. And obviously it can be a better world if there is the opportunity for empowerment. 
But how feasible is it actually that this empowerment will exist, be implementable? And how many organizations are actually taking the opportunity to maybe do that? Right. So I understand your question from the bottom up and top down. In other words, there's a technological feasibility. And then there's also that the implicit concern wouldn't just take over. Mm. Right. Uh, in fact, it's more than feasible. It's it's uh, it's easy. And then we say, well, we don't need humans anymore. Right. In terms of feasibility, um, there's some something re- very interesting happening. I think the world is now fascinated by ChatGPT. And I think for 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 I think that is right. Right. But the way the way we think about the excitement is is in this particular way, we have been trying to capture domain expertise, human expertise, for a very long time. This is this is not new. What I'm talking about. The key insight here is before it was very difficult. Now it's becoming so much easier. In the past, we would build these things called expert systems, right? The, the initial AI was not generative AI. It was not neural networks, right? It was painstakingly collecting human rules and then putting them into these rules engines, a lot of symbolic processing, right? Fuzzy logic and so on. And and they re, they work reasonably, like rice cookers work on fuzzy logic, right? Mm. Uh, but, but they're very limited. But now with what's available with, you know, I'm going to use the word chat GPT as a generative AI, large language models, we, we can capture human knowledge much more fluidly, right? How? Just give it the natural language specification. So that's it, fill fill out. So you think that it's becoming easier simply by our, capa- our ability to give it the natural language specification. That's right. I, I like to say that this is a revolution more of communication than of intelligence. In other words, we can now speak naturally to our machines. We can give them our documents and they can read them and they can incorporate that into their body of knowledge. Mm. Uh, I, th- I think that's 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 what's really new. Do you think, though, that we're at a point already where we can speak to it in a natural manner? I mean, I've heard from a lot of conversational interaction that there's still that necessity and mindset of approaching it in a systematic manner that we're not at a point yet where we can interact with it like a human and that we still have to be very conscious of the context and how we're actually inputting context and interacting with the models itself right so on the one hand I'm oversimplifying what I just said. There are, there's, there's a whole infrastructure. It's not just the models, right? It's a system that we're building. So for example, at, at Itomatic, we're building a system, a harness. Think of it as a team of these agents working together. A, a single domain expert cannot solve all problems, right? Let you take an MRI machine. You need a, you need an MRI technician expert. You need a radiologist expert. You need a musculoskeletal expert and so on. Um, so we're building something that allows this team of agents we call them small specialist model, SSM, right? So they work with what we call GMM, general management models. So so there's a whole ecosystem of these things coming together. So it's not just a single model that does it. So with that sort of simplification out of the way, I, I would say more generally, you know, when we interact with other humans, 
we also have to take context into account as well, right? When, when you give instructions to your assistants or other people, you have to, you know, there's the whole, almost a lifetime of, of context. And then you can say, with this person, I'm going to say it this way, maybe even diff- different language. I, I think that's actually something that we should expect to, you know, exactly to interact with our machines in, in a similar manner. I, I don't think the future is one gigantic brain, you know, sort of breathing and living in the world and sort of you know, like the, the image of Gaia, right? I think the future is going to be millions of these agents working with each other, uh, with hu- with other humans, right? So we'll have new collaborators. If you think of it that way, uh, the opportunity to build build these teams not just with other humans as we have, but with with these emerging agents uh, and and how we would interact with each other with them. You know, they would be with us in this this new world. Mm. Uh, I think that's within the next five to ten years. Interesting. So you would then say maybe if we go back to the example that you gave with the field service team and the empowerment that will be provided with this virtual assistant. That do you think that machine driven AI will completely replace the knowledge and expertise of humans? Or do you always, from what I've just understand and what you're conveying, feel that there'll be a need for for human involvement, especially when it comes to contextualization? Yeah, I I think if the world were static, if everything were static, then yes, I think machines will begin to take over this static world of ours, just as they have a century ago and you know 90 years ago, 80 years ago. The thing is, the world is not static. Humans are not static. Humanity is not uh, is not static. Even what it means to be humans will also change, right? I, I think that on, on the one hand, this question has been asked like almost every industrial revolution, right? And I, I'm not saying that in a sort of a wishy-washy way and that therefore, you know, without proof, we'll, we'll be okay. What is different this time? I think the concern people have is that for the first time, they seem to be challenging the one property that we think makes us top dog on earth, right? Which is our intelligence. intelligence. It's okay to be okay. stronger than me, faster than me, but smarter than me. No, 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 no. <laughs> but of course, uh, I mean, just not to interrupt you, but intelligence can also be divided into the different facets of intelligence. Are, exactly. we, are we talking about intelligence as just right. general cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, or the mixture? Like, what would be Absolutely. the Absolutely. That's, that's what I wanted to get to, which is intelligence mm. is contextual. Intelligence is embodied, right? And so... I believe there will always be a role. We can design it that way. So it's kind of like, I think it was Alan Kay who says, you know, the best way to predict the future is to create it. So what future do you want? The future that I want is one where humans leverage everything that the AI, the, the artificial intelligence that we create, but we leverage it and, and sort of we remain on top. One of the key things that we can, you know, the role that we can have in this new world is intent. We can keep that bit for ourselves, for example, right? It does require intelligence to to have intent to say, I want tomorrow to be this way. And hey, AI, help me make that happen. And I think that's a much more exciting, a good world that I want to help build rather than one where, okay, you know, Terminator, let's have the AI take over. Mm. And in talking in alignment with that, analogy of Terminator taking over. And as you mentioned, like AI helped me make that happen. I recall that you mentioned that there was recently a survey around AI optimism. Is there a split globally or can you give us a bit more insight into the optimism? Yeah, yeah. To to mention that, as you probably know, there have been a lot of surveys on technology optimism, right? And, you know, they, they asked 
respondents in each country, you know, how optimistic are you about this technology, digital technology, say web or mobile and so on. And very consistently, high income countries, you know, measured by GDP per capita, high income countries have always been much more optimistic, right, than, than emerging yeah. countries. Mm-hmm. Generally, everybody's optimistic, but you know, some more than others, right? And then Ipsos did a did a survey about twelve months ago about AI in particular, and the correlation is exactly reversed. I, I wish I could. Uh, interesting. Uh, if, if, if you have a way to share the the chart, I'll share that with you. Sure, we um, can. Yeah. The correlation, the R squared, is sixty seven percent. So it's undeniable. There's a there's a correlation, and AI uh, excitement or AI optimism is much higher in emerging countries in lower income countries by by GDP per capita and lower, in fact, even pessimistic, right? Worries and fears and so on in places like, you know, US, you know, UK, France. France is um, generally always the most pessimistic. So that's uh, <laughs> pretty consistent. Uh, but but you look at the chart, it's extremely strong correlation and it really surprised me. So AI for for many of the reasons that we're talking about, AI is different. Mm. And why do you think that is? Like, why do you think there's been a flip and there's been a realignment in the sort of correlation and the optimism in emerging countries rather than established? Well, well, first we we know I separate the what from the why, right? The what is undeniable; it's right in front of us. That that survey is there. The correlation is strong, and we can speculate as as to the why. And when I I shared this on Twitter, a lot of people you know speculated for different reasons. I'll share with you, you know, my speculation. Yeah, please do. My speculation is the following, which is this wave of AI, the ease with which we can encode domain expertise or human knowledge, right? Into, into the machines. This has been the holy grail of what I call the physical industry. The digital industry, you know, I, I've been at Google 14, 15 years ago. It has been working on the low-hanging fruits of AI machine learning. It, digital in, digital process, digital out. It turns out there's a, abundant data there. So we don't need domain expertise as much to solve the problems of digital industry. But physical industry, after my company was acquired by Panasonic, I learned this lesson that is that digital AI doesn't work, right? There's not enough data to to solve these physical problems. Uh, you know, how do you predict the failure of a refrigeration system? Okay, so those sort of physical problems, yeah. Exactly. Um, because that failure is unique to that workload, that uh, atmosphere, that that climate, and so on, and that model of the system. So by the time you collect data, it's already outdated, right? But it turns out if you can incorporate the physics understanding of that service person, all right, and their 30 years of experience, then you can solve that problem. And so with the ease of which with which now this generative AI can help do it, help us do that, the physical AI, the physical world can now you know, get the full benefit of AI. And I think that's consistent with lower income countries still making things. They're still living very much in the physical world versus the service driven economy. I think US is uh, 70-30, right? 70% services. And I looked at uh, Canada is 60% and so on. So so I'm, I'm kind of rooting for the emerging economies to benefit disproportionately from, from this wave of AI compared mm. to more advanced economies. It's really fascinating. Do you see then, Christopher, any risks with encoding human knowledge in this respect? Absolutely. And that's that's the nitty-gritty of implementation. <laughs> <laughs> so 
or uh, are those risks? Uh, in fact, the risks are. I was at a panel uh, this past Monday where people talk about trust and, and AI, trustworthy AI, and worrying about LLMs, you know, hallucination, and that they, they spit out the wrong facts or made up facts and so on, right? And then I remind people at that conference that, you know what, companies like Panasonic, like Apple, like Intel, you know, and, and Hitachi, the companies have been building so the heavy industries, the, the materials industries and so on. They've been dealing with human health and safety for a hundred years, right? The reason we're just talking about AI safety in Silicon Valley is because, you know, we're just touching that that issue for the first time, mm. but there's a lot we can learn from the industrial economy, right? You know, cars have have gone through you know way, you know a lot of safety issues you know in the early days, and then seat belts and so on. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned in terms of trust, safety, reliability, and so on from that from that industry and those lessons on how they do it, right? The process for that, even the regulatory considerations and so on. A lot of that can be learned from and applied sort of appropriately to AI. But yes, the, the safety issues are, are ever ever present. And so when 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 our company works on these things, in fact, we must have inherent trust, reliability, safety for these industrial companies to use, right? They, they don't want the AI today to push the buttons. That's why I call it a, a virtual advisor mm. and not virtual operator, right? The, 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 the buttons that have to be pushed by a human validating that and say, okay, now I'm going to go with that. Very much so. Well, it's certainly been an extremely interesting conversation. And I can uh, state that it has been because the time has gone past so quickly. And that's always an indication, I feel, of an exciting and and a curiously engaged opportunity for our listeners to really unpack this topic. So you've provided us with wonderful insights today, Christopher. Is there anything that you'd like to share before we end our conversation? Well, I've been talking about uh, industrial AI and so on, uh, you know, where I, I think there's an uh, there's Elon Musk, if I can quote him, <laughs> uh, he's a polarizing figure, uh, but he does have the right insight. He says there's misallocation of capital in Silicon Valley. There's too much money going into advertising, social media, videos and so on. He says there's enormous opportunity in what he refers to as the heavy industry. This is the industrial economy that I refer, refer to, mm. $25 trillion economy. You know, we're still, you and I are still atoms, right? I mean, without, we haven't uploaded ourselves fully yet. <laughs> the capability doesn't exist yet. So, so there's a whole economy outside of Silicon Valley that is benefiting or can benefit from, from AI. And, and so that's my call to action, you know, to whoever's listening. For example, there's a, there's a conference called Knowledge First Symposium at Stanford in October where leaders of these companies, right? Again, Panasonic, Hitachi, Petronas, and so on. These are country co companies that Silicon Valley don't hear much about. And they're gathering there and they say, here's how we want to take advantage of AI. And, and I think, I think people should pay more attention to that. Right. So, so maybe nothing else. I'll give one URL is k1st.world, right? Mm -hmm. K first world, knowledge first world. Excellent. I encourage everyone as well, um, all of our listening base there to ch check it out. Um, I know that I certainly will. So, thank you, Christopher. Awesome. Thanks, Lauren. I want to thank everyone else for listening today. And if you'd like to find out more about AI, 
machine learning and the insights era, then go to the Squirrel Academy at learn.squirrel.com. Thank you.